Thank you again for giving me the opportunity to open up the word with you, for you today. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 13. So we're going to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pray that the Lord will bless his word. Psalm 13 starts. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Pray with me. God, we come to you today and we we ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy again. You promised us that your mercies are new every morning. We, We need more this morning. We wake up completely dependent upon your power and your goodness. We could wake up as early as we want and stay up as late as we want, but if you don't show up, ain't nothing happening. So we pray that you would would let us know and experience your presence through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that as as we look at, at suffering, as we look at pain, as we look at these prayers of lament, that you would help us see the smiling face behind the, the frowning providence that lays before us. Open up your word to us and open up our hearts to your word to be changed by it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't travel a whole lot, but every single time I've been on a plane, I'm sure you've had the same thing, I've heard the same exact spiel every single time about oxygen masks and exit rows and using my seat as a flotation device, which doesn't seem like it float very well, but I assume it does, right? But by God's grace, I've never had to use any of that stuff. I'm assuming probably most of you have not either. Um, and in fact, at this point, when I fly, most of the time, I kind of just, just tune them out. I don't really listen. Because I think that the chances of this plane going down are so small, I'd rather just catch up on SkyMall to see what they got the offer than actually listen to what the flight attendant's saying. I don't really pay attention, right? But if I knew, if you knew that that plane was going down, first of all, you probably wouldn't get on it. But if you knew, if you knew, like you're on it and it's going down, you would listen to those instructions. Your very life would be dependent upon you listening to what they're saying and what you need to do. We would take notes. We would ask questions. We would memorize every step, every, every action. Why? Because when you know something bad is coming, you're likely to be prepared, right? We'll have some news for you today. Suffering is coming. Probably not anything novel for anybody, but suffering is coming. Every single person in this room has that one thing in common. Suffering. We've all experienced it. We all are experiencing. We're all about to experience it. Suffering is at the very core of the human existence. It defines so much of our lives. When we enter the world, it's through the suffering and the pain of our mothers. 
when we exit this world. It's through our own suffering. Or we leave behind other people who just experience the agony and despair of loss and suffering. And everything in between is, is, is stained, is, is tinged with the bitterness and the pain that comes from just being a human in a fallen world. So the question isn't if you're going to suffer, but it's how you are going to respond when you do. How are you going to respond? And I'm, I'm thankful, I'm so thankful that God is, God is straightforward with us in our suffering. He, he, he actually gives dignity to our suffering by not only acknowledging it, that it happens, but he gives dignity to it by giving us the freedom to talk about it to other people and to him. To talk about it also, to bring our greatest pains, our greatest sorrows to him in prayer. And one of the primary places in all the scriptures that talks so directly and distinctly about suffering is in the Psalms. And this morning we're going to look at one Psalm, Psalm 13, that speaks not only to our suffering, but how we can endure it, how we can come through the other side of it with our faith, with our joy intact. So I read it before. I want to read it one more time because it's short, and it's probably going to be the best thing I say today is this right here. I'm going to read it one more time. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So as you listen to it, you can maybe hear, maybe read, that there are three distinct parts to this psalm. And these three parts are going to really serve as the outline for the, the text this morning. So there are six verses, and each of those three parts is verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6. Verses 1 and 2 open with David's complaint, David's longing for answers. Verses 3 and 4 show us David's request for deliverance, and verses 5 and 6 show his commitments to trust joy, and praise in the midst of suffering. And what, what makes this passage unique it isn't just that it talks about pain. Because as a matter of fact, uh, over a third of the Psalms that we have in our Bible deal with lament, deal with suffering. So what makes this passage unique isn't that it talks about it, but, it, but it's, it's really the emphasis on waiting and, and wondering what's going to happen in the midst of suffering. So in many ways, this, this is a psalm of, of really waiting. Waiting to see what God's going to do. Waiting for relief, waiting for answers, waiting for hope. Really waiting for God. But this psalm shows us that waiting doesn't mean we just do nothing. It doesn't mean we just sit there, twiddle our thumbs. God, in his love, invites us to pray. He invites us to pray. More specifically, he invites us to respond to suffering through prayers of lament. Through prayers of lament. And there is an excellent book on this subject, on the subject of lament, by a guy named Mark Vrogup. Weird name. It's a good book, though. 
And he defines suffering this way. He says, or sorry, lament. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. I love that. So I think the theme of this psalm can be put this way. When we wait on God in prayers of lament, he will bring us relief. So we we move from waiting to relief through lament. And the natural question then is what does this kind of prayer look like? What does it look like? And I think we can see three aspects to lament. These are going to be the three primary points of the sermon. Complaint, request, commitment. Complaint, request, commitment. First we see complaint. We see that lament often begins with complaint. And by complaint... I don't mean a kind of sinful, selfish grumbling that we often see in the Bible in our own lives. It's not what he's talking about. Instead, it's an an honest questioning of what God is doing and why he's allowing it to happen. And we see that there's a a type of complaining to God in prayer that is not only acceptable to God, but it's, it's necessary to really pray, to be a real prayer. There's more than one type of complaining there is, there is that sinful, hopeless murmuring or grumbling, but there's also a holy, faith-filled complaining or questioning. Th- th- think, about, think about the birth of Jesus. I think we see a really good example of this. Remember Ze- Zechariah. He was the, the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah questioned God after the angel told him that he was going to have a son. And Zechariah asked the question, how can these things be? And God answered his question by shutting his mouth until the baby was born. Like he answered the question, like it seemed like he judged him for his questioning heart. So he asked that question, how can these things be? God answered him by, in one sense, judging him to show him that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And then compare that with Mary. When Mary is told that she, a virgin, was going to have a son... She asked almost verbatim the exact same question. How can these things be? But God answers her by giving her more details and by commending her faith. So he commended her faith in that question. Same question, but different hearts. So with complaining, we might say the very same words, but have very different hearts behind those words. Very different hearts when dealing with pain and doubt. So there are different ways to question God, appropriate ways, inappropriate ways. And same thing with complaining. There's a way to complain and lift our burdens to God that is not only acceptable, but but is placed in the scriptures as a model for prayer. And at the end of the day, God, God already knows what's in our hearts. He already knows what we're thinking, what we're feeling. But when we, when we re- refuse to express those things to God, in prayer, we actually slow that process down. We slow down the process uh, of healing and growth that God intends to bring about in us. And so this psalm doesn't encourage us just to keep pushing those things down. It doesn't tell us to hide them in the closet. It tells us to bring those things to God in prayer. So David's first question, his first complaint, is how long? How long? And he asked that question in four different ways. 
it, it's a lot easier to experience pain if we know there's an end date to it. Right? If, if, if you know that, that a root canal that you've been putting off is going to have a, a few days of pain, but it's going it's to lead to years of relief, you're willing to do it, right? But what about pain? What about suffering that has no end date? That doesn't have an expiration date from what we can see. That's what David felt. And so David asked the natural question, how long? And then he asked what, what might seem like a, almost a blasphemous question. He says, will you forget me forever? So David begins his complaint by going straight to the source. He begins this lament by confessing his own fears about God. He goes to God and is honest enough to admit that he feels abandoned. He feels forgotten. And and it was this feeling of continual, never-ceasing abandonment that drove David almost to despair. Uh, There's a guy named Andrew Fuller. He was a, a missionary, supporter of missionaries in the 1800s. He was commenting on the story of Job. And he said, It is not under the sharpest, but the longest trials that we are in most danger of fainting. When Job was accosted with evil tidings in quick succession, he bore it with becoming fortitude. But when he could see no end to his troubles, he sank under them. And it seems to be David was in a similar place. He began to sink under his troubles. So when it feels like our pain has no end date, when it feels like they're never going to end, we can quickly lose heart. We can lose all pretense of faith altogether. And David felt like God had hidden his face from him. And why is that? Well, it seems, it seems to be just the lack of answers to his suffering. His pain went on for days, which may have turned into months and years. And we often equate the presence of suffering with the lack of God's presence. It's so easy to do that, to equate, again, the presence of suffering with the lack of the presence of God. And this is especially true when our questions with God are accompanied by other kinds of internal anxieties and worries. That's what we see here. David expressed his fears about God, but then he he confessed, he gave this complaint of the anxieties he has in himself. You can see that in verse 2. David said, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? All the day. So David felt like God had abandoned him and that he had no other counselors. He had nobody else. And he was left with nothing but his own troubled soul to be a counselor. I don't know. I mean, have you ever been there? I have. David has. And David said that his own soul, his his own counsel, led him into having sorrows in his heart all the day. Like his days were defined by sorrow. Think, think about your heart like a pantry. Among other things, there are hearts are a lot of things, but think of it like a storage place. Places where we, we can put things where we need just immediate access to them. Well, in times of distress and discouragement, it, it might seem like when you open up the pantry of your heart, that all you see are fears, anxieties, worries, sorrow, just everywhere. 
And we have the tendency, when we see those things, to just hide them away. You just push them to the back of the pantry and try to put the, the fruit loops in front of them so we don't see them, right? We try to just push them away and hide them. And, and, and maybe a, a thought of fear or worry comes our way. And, and instead of dealing with it, right there, again, we just tuck it away. And then great sorrow enters in from that. And instead of addressing it, we, we refuse to deal with it. Again, we hide it away. And when we do this enough, our hearts are just overrun with all of it. And we become overwhelmed. We become just hopeless. And we begin to question what we never thought was questionable. We start asking questions we wouldn't normally ask ourselves. We begin to fear what we used to be an absolute assurance. And David knew that where he was wasn't a good place and that he could not get himself out. He was left with his own sorry heart for a counselor and it wasn't working for him. But not only did David share these concerns about God and the anxieties in himself, we also see that he he confessed his worries with other people. So David felt abandoned. David felt attacked from every single side. He felt like God. He felt like his own heart. He felt like those around him had deserted him, were attacking him at every single turn. And he felt like his enemy would dominate him forever, he says. David obviously had real enemies throughout his life. But but it's telling when we look at David's life, the real enemies, the biggest enemies, are never the obvious ones. It's not Goliath that gets the most ink in the pages. It's not the Philistine armies or leaders. It's those closest to him that end up being his, his biggest enemies, his biggest threats, his biggest hurts. It's Saul. It's the chosen king of God's people who spent the final years of his life hunting David down, trying to murder him. And many of, many of us know what it feels like when someone who's supposed to be a leader, who's supposed to be a friend, turns on us. And not just once or twice, but relentlessly, to the point where we're asking, how long is this going to go on for? Like, I just don't feel like my soul can take it anymore. I think of another of David's big enemies. It was his own son, Absalom. So at first it was his spiritual leader, then it was his own son. They had mounted against him, and he feared at different points in his life that these men would take away the plan that God had for his life. He didn't know what was going on. And so David asks how long over and over and over again because this pain feels like it's going on for eternity. It just won't end. It's like time has just stopped and it's just stretching this pain out. To quote Charles Spurgeon again, he said that time flies with full-fledged wing in our summer days, but in our winters he flutters painfully. Time seems to move much slower in days of distress, in days of despair and doubt. So David felt oppressed. He felt oppressed by God, by his own soul, by those around him. From all sides, the, the walls of his life were just closing in, and he didn't know how much longer he could take it for. And as, as we go through these first few verses, maybe, maybe you're not like me. I, I'm, I'm definitely the kind of person who feels things very deeply and feel hurts deeply. Maybe you're not like that. Maybe you're thinking, 
wow, David just needed to chill out a little bit. Maybe he just needed to like, take a step outside, get a Coke or something, and walk around. I don't know, do something. Or maybe you look at other people in your life that have these kind of struggles and think that. You might be thinking they just need to buck up and get over it. And sometimes that's not the worst counsel in the world. But just think about, note how many times the Bible says to just get over it. I want you to study the Bible and look for the number of times that the Bible diminishes our pain. The number of times that it diminishes the suffering we experience. It doesn't do it. This psalm is one of the many places in the Bible where God gives our suffering the dignity of not being scoffed at or not being immediately rebuked. So for those of us who have these kinds of struggles, who have these kinds of questions like David, even just seeing God allow these kinds of complaints, to allow these kinds of questions, can start the process of allowing that first little bit of light to come back into our souls. And for us, this, this kind of complaint could be as simple as David's. It could be a prayer that sounds like this, like, how long is this going to continue? God, this is really hard. I'm not sure I can do this. Why are you allowing this to happen? These are the kinds of questions and statements that if, if you experience just the normal substance for most people, you should just be praying these things all the time. David shared these, he shared these other, these very serious complaints in this psalm. I mean, at one point, again, towards the beginning, he even questioned whether God had abandoned him. But even in those moments, we see something. Even in those moments, he, he expressed those things to God. He was talking to God about these things instead of just keeping them in his own soul. So one of the marks of true lament is, is that our hearts are expressing these things to God as opposed to just keeping them, just playing on repeat in our own hearts. So do you talk to yourself about yourself, or do you talk to God about yourself? Are your complaints repeated to God, or are they repeated to yourself? One of those things will lead to hopelessness, will lead to despair, will lead to just internal turmoil. And the other is included in the Bible as a model for prayer. Same words, different heart. And this side of the cross, like of all people, this side of the cross, we have even greater cause to share our suffering, to share our complaints with God. You can have confidence that God is with you in your suffering. Because of Jesus, the suffering servant, God himself is inseparably linked to human suffering. Jesus is the ultimate sufferer. He's the ultimate sufferer who bore the wrath of God, who bore the penalty of our sins, who experienced the Father's face turning away from him. So if you will only look to Jesus, if you will look to Jesus and believe, you can escape the everlasting suffering that awaits all who reject him. In Christ, we can have relief from future, everlasting suffering, everlasting torment, but we can also have confidence that not only is God aware of our present suffering, he's become a part of it. He knows. And even if everybody else downplays the the fears and the pain and the sorrow you feel, know that Jesus does not. 
Jesus doesn't. Jesus hasn't deserted you. Jesus will not abandon you. Know that. Remind yourself of that. And look at what David did to find relief from those feelings of darkness and despair. He took the complaints. He took the the questions that were circling like buzzards in his soul just about to attack him, and he released them. He released them to his heavenly Father. So lament begins with complaint, but then it moves on to a request. So complaint, request. First, David, the first request we see here in verse 3, David asks God to consider him. That's another way of asking God just to look at him, look at me. So David felt like God had forgotten him, but instead of lashing out in bitterness and in anger and telling God to go away forever, the first thing he does is say, God, look at me in the eyes. Look at me. He knows that God is the one who is sovereign over his suffering. But that, again, that doesn't drive him to bitterness. That doesn't drive him to anger. That drives him to God. So we see that David's despair had not caused him to abandon the goodness of God. And he knows, that, he knows just that with one look, with one look, God could just make it all go away. And again, this is one of the signs that what we're experiencing is a kind of holy complaint, not a sinful grumble. A holy complaint results in asking God for grace, asking God for help. A sinful grumble results in just us deserting God for someone or something else that might help us. So we see David requesting for God to consider him, to look at him. But it doesn't stop there. He asks God to answer him. In verse 3, he asked God to answer him. He asked God for, to, just for, to respond. Again, he knows that his trials come from the hand of God, so he asks God, God to respond. No, no, look at David's boldness here. We might be tempted to think that maybe at times he was a little brash at times in the psalm to, to ask for or even demand some of these things. You, you may ask, like, who am I to tell God to do anything? There's certainly truth to that. Not a bad question. But at the end of the day, when we, even when you just consider what prayer is, it is absolutely stunning. It's a terrifying thing to do in one sense. We are literally going to the God of all creation and speaking to him directly. We're going to the one who struck down Uzzah for merely touching the Ark of the Covenant. We are going to the one who caused the earth to swallow up Achan for stealing a few pieces of gold. And we're talking to him. So what makes us think he won't do the same to us? The answer is relationship. It's a relationship. What does David say right after he calls on God to consider and answer him? He says, O Lord, my God, the Lord is the one who made the world He's the one who controls all the pain and the sorrow that David was experiencing. But David knew that God was still his. He was his God. Only our relationship with God can give us the desire and the boldness to go to God for relief in our pain. And the the final request we see David making here, he, he petitions, he requests God, he says, to light up my eyes. Restore the brightness to my eyes. 
So David acknowledges here that, that he hasn't been seeing things as clearly as he should. He's asking God for the eyes of faith to be opened so that he might see his suffering rightly, so that he might see God rightly. So this is a prayer of faith asking for faith. It's a prayer of faith asking for faith. And one of the most common pictures of sight or faith we see in the Bible is sight. And just as Jesus opened up the eyes of the blind, God can open up our eyes, our blind, dull eyes, which can't see God clearly in the midst of our pain. Oftentimes, suffering and pain can be just like a fog that that distorts our view of reality and even God. So this is a prayer asking for God to open up our eyes so we can see. David says that if God didn't open up his eyes, then he was going to sleep the sleep of death. In other words, if God didn't act, he had no chance. David knew that a vision of God was so vital for his existence as a person that if he didn't see God, then he was a goner. He wasn't going to make it. I wish, I mean, oh, that we would have that kind of dependence on God and seeing him clearly that we don't even know how we're going to make it apart from that. Instead, I mean, so often we just, we just mill about life. We just go do our thing trying to mask our problems, trying to hide our sorrows with social media, entertainment, sex, drinking, whatever, just dumb stuff. These things, that we, we set our gaze on these things that, are never going to be able to hold the weight of our deepest pains and our deepest sufferings. And this psalm reminds us that only a vision of God is able to bear up the magnitude of the dark days that we experience. Only God can do that. And David knew. David knew that if God didn't act, then he was going to sleep the sleep of death. That's not a good good nap. That's not the kind of Sunday nap you're looking forward to today. His enemies would prevail over him. His foes would rejoice. And and those aren't just whiny complaints for David. Those those were facts. That was going to happen if God didn't show up for David. And this request, this prayer, is one of faith. David still saw the bigness and the goodness of God. And and finally, we see where this kind of faith-filled petition, this faith-filled request to God, um, where this can lead us. And it leads to commitment. So David begins with with holy complaint of his situation. He he transitions to this faith-filled request where where he would wants to be. And it ends with this commitment to the goodness of God and his plan. So in lament, in this kind of prayer, we move from complaints to request, Lord willing, to commitment. And this section, verse 5, begins with the conjunction, but. And David has obviously been going through some really hard times, times of deep pain, like real hurt. But after seeking the face of God, he's had a change of heart. His perspective has been made sharper and clearer. And it's that one word. It's as though David is saying, even though, even though all these things are true, and they were for David, and they might be for you, even though all these things are true, 
even though I'm hurting, I can still see God's good work in the process. So the the same person who was complaining about the hidden face of God in verse 1 is now able to proclaim and profess his trust in God's love. So so how did he move from that? Like, how, how do we get from this place of waiting and wandering to this place of hope and assurance? And the answer is prayer. Like, that's how it happened for him. Prayer is the bridge between waiting and hope. It's the path between wondering and confidence. It's the vehicle that takes us from complaints to commitments. Prayer is how that happens. And in these two verses, you can see at least three different components of this kind of prayerful commitment that David was making. The first thing we see is a commitment to trust in God's love. That shouldn't surprise us, right? One of the biggest questions that our suffering can make us ask is to question God's love. Like, if God loved me, why, why would he let this happen? That seemed to be what David was struggling with in verse 1. But when God restored the brightness to David's eyes, when he answered that request in verse 3, David was able to see clearly, to see God clearly for who he was and what he was doing. He, he had a more solid confidence in the love of God, or at least he was committed to try to see it more clearly. So for us, a commitment to trust in God's love is really a commitment to look to the cross every single day. What better place can we go to remind ourselves of God's love for us than the cross of Christ? There's no better place we can go. We need to preach that to ourselves every single day lest we forget. Because this kind of trust needs that constant just gospel nourishment, feeding it. Just think of a, a thirsty field that, that cracks open because it's so thirsty and lack of water. Our hearts become brittle. Our hearts become faithless when we don't intentionally remind ourselves of the gospel. When we don't intentionally remind ourselves of God's love for us. But just like that same cracked field our hearts will readily soak up that living water so that we can bear the fruit of faith, so that we can endure the pain that God has given to us. Next, we see David was committing to rejoice in God's deliverance. So he moved from doubting to confidence, and he moved from from sorrow to joy. He moved from sorrow to joy. And and maybe, we don't really know the circumstances around this psalm. Maybe the psalm was written after the very end of the process. You know, God had delivered David. It was all good. His enemies were gone. His sufferings were over. Now he could rejoice. But another way to read it is that it's saying that God actually hadn't removed everything yet. But David was so confident in God that it was as good as done. Even though it wasn't over, he was trusting that these things are true. And I'm sure that one of the things that David realized was the greatest enemy of his, his own soul was his own doubting heart. So that when, when God granted David a, a clearer vision like we saw in verse 3, David was able to find deliverance from himself. He was delivered from his doubting, from his fickle soul. Because David had listened to the, the doubts of his heart. And it led him to despair. But then he stopped. 
He stopped just listening to the doubts and his fears, and he brought those things to God. And God gave him the ability to see that situation with clearer eyes. He brought him to this place of trust, this place of joy in God's deliverance. So David said, I shall rejoice. Because oftentimes joy is a decision. Joy is a decision. It's obviously a work of grace. It's a gift from God that we need God to give us that. But oftentimes we have to rejoice before the joy will follow. We have to rejoice, to choose to rejoice by God's grace, and then the joy follows. So he was rejoicing in God's deliverance. And finally, this kind of commitment is marked by a praise of God's grace. David proclaims in verse 6 that he will sing to the Lord because he has treated him graciously. He's dealt bountifully with him. And I think this profession is as much for David as it is for God. David declares that he is going to sing. He will sing. Even though the sufferings and the trials and the waiting might continue, David wasn't going to wait until it's all over to start singing, to start praising. You know, and this is, this is one of the reasons why we sing every week when we gather together. It's one of the reasons you sing. We are humans with these everlasting souls, souls that are shaped by truth, especially through art, through music. We sing because it's praise to God, but we also sing because it changes us. It reinforces these kinds of truths in our hearts. So David shows us here that we can and we should sing even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of trial. So praise God for his grace. He has dealt bountifully with you. So as, as, as we just take a step back, as we consider this, this psalm of lament, it's interesting what you see when, when you read the psalm backwards, when you start at verse 6 and you see how you got there. I think you see that the only way to this kind of trust, joy, and, and praise that you see in verses 5 and 6, the only way to that is to start with verses 1 and 2. In other words, apart from suffering apart from trial, apart from waiting, apart from complaining, we're not going to call out to God in petition and in prayer and in request. Until those clouds of suffering roll in, we're not going to see how cloudy our vision is. And we'll then have to ask God for grace to see, to see him, to see our problems more clearly. And then that's when we can come to this place of confident assurance, this place of joy. So without the trials, without the suffering, we can never come to a place where we realize our greatest need is God. Like that's what God is, one of the many things that God is doing in our suffering is he's showing us that he is our greatest need. Without our pain, we can never taste the sweetness of God's grace. And I think it's important to see that the, the shift from verse 1 to verse 6 doesn't happen overnight. There's not necessarily any reason to believe that this is all just like one moment in David's life. He could have wrote this psalm over years, for all we know. Learning to lament like this is not a quick fix to just make our problems just go away. Learning to lament like David in this psalm is really a lifelong journey through suffering, through prayer, through relief, rinse, repeat over and over again. And we might think that a prayer of lament is like, like cough syrup. You know, it's, it's not enjoyable, but if you want to feel better, it's got to gulp it down and get it over with. Like, that's, that's not what's going on here. 
This kind of honest, tearful, faith-filled prayer does so much more than bring us relief. Does so much more than that. It brings us to God. It, it keeps us anchored to him. It keeps us tethered to the only source of joy and meaning in the universe. Spurgeon said that he learned to kiss the wave that threw him against the rock of ages. So may, may we kiss the wave of suffering and thank God for the life jacket of lament to keep us afloat while we strive for a deeper fellowship with Jesus. Pray with me that, that we might all learn to lament and follow suit. God, we, we come to you with, with hurts and questions and complaints. And right now, this church in particular is, is wondering how long are people going to be sick for? So I pray that you, you would use your word to give them just greater fodder for prayer. I do pray that you would consider these people, that you would answer them, that you would enlighten their eyes. And I pray that you would bring every single person in this room to a place where they could have just a, a confident trust and joy and praise towards you. Lord, we need you. We can't do anything without you. But with you, all things are possible. So I pray that you would have your way and do your work in our hearts. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.